Are you looking for your next podcast binge to lose yourself in? Let me introduce you to a story that begins with sweet romance but quickly turns into betrayal and the far-reaching consequences of one man's deceit. It's an account told by the women whose lives were forever changed by it. You probably think the stories about you is a podcast hosted by Brittany Art. And it's not just another podcast. It's an exploration of self-discovery, growth, resilience, and healing. And it's all told in a unique format. And this is why I'm so excited about this one. This is Brittany's story, but she doesn't just host it like a podcast in the traditional sense. Through immersive soundscapes and the voices of the women affected by these events, this podcast creates such a unique experience experience that's going to make your headphones glow in the dark. I can't wait to get started and I hope you'll join me. Listen and follow. You'll probably think the stories about you wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we're three clinical psychologists, Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mentioned in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, Debbie. It's good to see you today. Hi, Diana. You too. How is it in Denver over there for you? You know, it's um, it's it's good. It's it's evening, so it's dark now, and it's kind of chilly tonight. How about Santa Barbara? It's good. It's beautiful. Not chilly, not as chilly, usual. Not chilly. Well, we had a little bit of a cold snap with our rain, but um, that has paid off in a lot of green, and it is pretty phenomenal. So I'm super excited to see you when you come out next week for your visit. Yeah. Uh, so tonight we are going to talk about embodied awareness or embodiment, which is a topic um, that really is answering the question, am I in my body? And first we're going to explore the definition of embodiment. We're going to take a look at how maybe um, wellness is related or lack of wellness is related to embodiment, mental wellness and what neuroscience has to say about embodiment. And then we may make this a two-part episode because I also wanna talk more about uh, sort of specific practices that you can be doing to become more embodied. Okay, sounds good. I, I'm not sure where our listeners are at with this, but this is something that's totally unfamiliar territory to me. So yeah. I'm really curious. Um, Diana assures me that I'll be okay, but I honestly have no idea what she's about to say. So yes, yes. <laughs> I'm very curious. And so beyond curiosity of the mind, we're also going to have some curiosity of experience because I'm hoping that I can create an actual experience for you in this episode. So there's going to be times when I'm going to be asking you to do some physical practices with me and they're sort of just kind of dive in and do it. And I might ask you to get some props or do certain things, but we'll just pause it and go around and get those things and we'll, we'll come back and do All it right. Okay. I'm, I'm game. Okay. So let's just start by pausing and thinking about maybe how much have you actually felt inside 
your body today versus going about your day, doing things, thinking things, being in your head. Maybe just sort of thinking that for yourself. How much, what percentage of the time would you say for you, Debbie, were you actually aware and conscious of being inside your body? Um, well, it's, I don't, I, I, I would say it's pretty low, my yeah. percent. Yeah. I spent most of my day kind of doing and thinking and not much paying attention to my body. Right. And I would say that a is little though, a little? I did kind of exercise. And at one point I noticed I was sort of tired when I was exercising. I noticed a couple things. I noticed I was tired at some point. Uh-huh. Um, I noticed I was sort of hungry, Good. but in general, I spent most of the day kind of, yeah, just not paying any attention to my body. Yeah. And that is that sort of level of disembodiment, I would say, is the case for most of us. And when we start off as small babies, we're actually very embodied. Our, our, our bodies are our whole experience, right? So what's happening inside of our body is motivating all of our behavior and the full scope of our experience. But as we get older and um, sort of enter into the world, we become less and less in our bodies and we actually become better and better at ignoring our bodies for a whole slew of reasons. And what I'm going to talk about a little bit later on are what some of the negative consequences of that are for us. Uh, in terms of our mental health and, and overall um, wellness. But first I just want to give a little bit of background around my interest in the body and its intersection between um, the mind, the intersection between the mind, brain, and body. And it's a pretty old uh, thing for me. So I was a biopsychology major in college, and that's where you kind of see my like nerdy science stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time in college, I really started getting interested in yoga, and you and became um, just sort of used a yoga practice as part of my stress management and my own um, spiritual practice while I was in college. And then I chose my graduate advisor when I was choosing um, a graduate program. I knew I wanted to go into eating disorder research, but I chose my graduate advisor because she was doing a type of research that now looking back on it, I can really see as embodiment. So she was studying what's called appetite awareness training, and it was a revolutionary way to look at eating disorders from more an inside out perspective of helping women use their own internal signals of hunger and fullness to guide their eating, as opposed to using like a meal plan or three meals a day and this is what you're supposed to eat, which is what traditional CBT methods were using at that time. So it was really, there was something about that that I was really drawn to. And again, that was sort of that embodiment, also biology Mm -hmm. component. And then when I got to, graduate school, I got so immersed in the research and the stress and pressure of graduate school that I became very disembodied myself. And because I've had this awareness of my own um, need to be aligned with myself, um, I noticed that about a year in and I actually withdrew from my program. Hmm. And I had the benefit of doing graduate school in Boulder where um, you are like in the embodiment capital of the world in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I withdrew and I went to the um, Shambhava School of Yoga in El Dorado Mountain. And I went and learned how to be a yoga teacher. I would go to the go to the ashram, be fully involved in the life of the ashram, practice in a yurt, do all of that. I, it really became clear to me that my research needed to integrate this 
this sort of component hmm. of uh, Eastern-based principles. And that's when I decided to integrate DBT with appetite awareness for my dissertation. And so I um, collaborated with a woman at Stanford University who was doing DBT for eating disorders. And that was that was sort of how it, it came about. Interesting. So, I just want to tell that little personal history because I feel like... I didn't like, know this about you, Diana. Oh, yeah. That's very so, interesting. So yeah. I, I feel like this, this whole piece of embodiment and neuroscience and then also all the ACT work is fully coming together for me in a personal way and also in a professional way. And I'm really excited to share about the embodiment part tonight. Wow, cool. Yeah. Sounds like it's it's bringing together a lot of things that you're really passionate about kind of all into one uh, one sort of topic for and we're going to benefit from all the wisdom of all this different experience that you've had coming together. I've had some great teachers along the way. I think Kelly Wilson I've talked a lot about um, two women in particular have really impacted me in the last year, and they are Katie Bowman, who I've talked a bit about in other episodes, who mm-hmm. is the biomechanist who studies nutritious movement. And she really, I think, she, although she, I don't know if she would call it embodiment, she may call it entering the wilderness um, or rewilding herself, um, she really talks about our bodies in relationship to their natural movement path patterns and our bodies in nature, which is in a lot of ways uh, a level of embodiment. When you are in nature and you are connecting to the ground and connecting to the trees and walking through the forest, you can't help but be in your body. It, well, you can. Mm-hmm. You can be out of your body, but it really helps to be in your body. And the second woman is Bo Forbes, who is a psychologist and yoga instructor, and also she studies a lot of neuroscience. And she has a whole belief around um, mental health as, or mental people that have mental struggles as those being diseases of disembodiment. So a number of uh, mental health concerns, which are really related to being outside of your body, eating disorders being one of them, um, and not being connected or also being very avoidant of your internal experience. So you think about an anxiety disorder um, of avoidant of the internal experience of anxiety. And so I went to a workshop with Meg McKelvey. She um, is a psychologist in Boulder, and she invited me to come along to a workshop with Bo, and it really totally shifted my perspective on the field of psychology and I and my own practice. And since then, very few clients are sitting in their chair for the whole 50 minutes of my sessions anymore. We're usually hmm. doing some form of an embodiment practice. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. So let's start with the definition. I said that we were going to start there. Okay. And so mindfulness is, is, you know, bringing attention to the present moment experience. And embodiment is really bringing attention to the present moment experience in our bodies. And it includes things like our hunger and satiety, but it also includes things like awareness of our breath, awareness of our heartbeat, uh, awareness of sensations within our body, um, just sort of a, what Bo Forbes would call an innerness, and what neuroscientists call interoceptive awareness. So interoceptive awareness is often measured in neuroscience via people's being able to be aware of their heartbeat or being able to even count their heartbeat. Uh, But it can be a whole range of things of internal bodily bodily signals. Norman Farb, who's a neuroscientist and studies interoceptive awareness, he defines it as the process of receiving 
and um, assessing and appraising internal bodily signals. And it's really in, involved in um, homeostasis. So we, the reason why we have all these body signals are to tell us things like, it's time to go to the bathroom now. <laughs> it's time to get mm -hmm. something to eat. And mm -hmm. what we really have done as a society is we have gotten really good at being more in our heads than our bodies and disconnecting. So much so that it really only takes something like, okay, now I'm exerting myself through physical exercise to realize that I'm tired. My guess is you probably were tired way on earlier in the day. Mm -hmm. Or to get to the point of being overly hungry to realize that, ooh, my blood sugar's low, I'm really irritable. And my guess is you probably had some signs of hunger and eating food a little bit mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. So we can actually train ourselves. And meditators are examples of people who have trained themselves to become much more aware of their breathing. Uh, people can train themselves to be much more aware of their hunger and fullness signals. That's what appetite awareness training is about. But we can also train ourselves to be aware of all sensations in our body. And something like the body scan used by Kabat-Zinn is a perfect example of that, where you move through all the different body parts in your body with awareness, without changing, without putting a label or even judgment on it, but just a practice of sensing. Mm -hmm. So I want to do something with you where we're just going to talk about the difference of interoceptive awareness and, and other types of um, sensory modalities. So you know that we have the five senses, mm -hmm. right? You taught this in preschool, like every preschool. Sure. Say. Okay, what are the five <laughs> senses? Let's see. Do you want me to name them? Name them. Sight, sight sound, touch, taste, smell. But really we have eight. And so the other senses um, are, inter are uh, those are all, the first five senses are all senses of exteroception. So our ability to sense the world around us, right? Mm -hmm. And the other three are related to more of like our body in that world. So I'm going to have you stand up. And if you're listening, do this too. Go ahead, stand up. Okay. Okay. Not if, not if you're driving. <laughs> Okay, not if you're driving. Thank you for this summer. So stand up. Safety first. Okay. So first, what I want you to do is, are you wearing shoes? No. Oh, good. I'm wearing socks. Okay. Even better. So um, we're going to talk about barefoot a little bit later on, why we should all go shoeless. But start standing up in your barefoot. And what I first want you to do is just take a look, actually take off one of your socks and take a look at your foot. So you can use your exteroception um, of sight to just look at your foot and see, you know, really kind of take a look at it and see your toes. You can see, um, you know, where the separation between your toes, where maybe where there's closeness versus openness. And then you could also practice, you know, touching your foot and feeling maybe your heel where there may be some more roughness or some smoothness over the top of the foot or little bits of hairs. So you're using your ex exteroception right now, okay, by sensing your foot, right? Okay, yep. Now the next sense that we have is proprioception, which is awareness of our body in space. I'm going to talk about the next two, which is awareness of our body in space, proprioception, and vestibular um, awareness, which is awareness of our balance. So if you were to take a step forward, you would need to, you can practice this, lift up your foot and move it forward and step it down. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
You're so good okay. at doing this with me. So when you're doing <laughs> that, you're requiring proprioception. You're requiring, you know, your foot didn't cross over your body and land on the other foot, right? You know where the rest of your body is in space and you didn't, you don't even have to look at it anymore, right? Your body knows mm -hmm. where the rest of your body is in space. Your right foot knows where your left foot is, right? Yeah. They know. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's yeah. proprioception. That's another sense. And then okay. you also were using your inner ear and your vestibular um, balancing sense to be able to just, if you lift your foot and hover, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can feel the muscles sort of working to keep me balancing. Okay. That's interoception. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I jumped the gun. You jumped the okay. gun, but that's perfect because I want you to do that now, which is I want you to close your eyes and we're going to continue to focus on our right foot. And now we're going to practice interoception which is I want you to be aware of the sensations inside your right foot. And you may notice a variety of sensations and you may notice that you notice sensations in one area and then there's other areas that feel more blank or you don't notice sensation in them. And you may notice the sensation is kind of moving. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all of that is interoception. That's your inner body awareness. And when you said I felt I noticed my uh, muscles in my foot. That is another example of that. Okay. So, yeah, and it did sort of shift like it kind of moved around the leg a little. And uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the time we bring very little awareness to our feet until probably our feet start hurting. And most of the time we're doing more of that proprioceptive or exteroceptive awareness. But we can actually bring these same principles of interoceptive awareness to other parts of our body or inside our body, our sensations, our feelings, our inner experience. And I want to do another practice with you, which comes directly from Bo Forbes. And you can learn more about Bo Forbes and actually do this practice from her um, on YouTube. And I'll put a link to some of her embodiment practices uh, from YouTube. But what Bo Forbes taught in the workshop that I attended with her was something called an embodiment check-in. And first, just asking, am I in my body? Allowing yourself to get into your body. And notice that there's a state of your mind. There's, a, there's sort of a pace that your mind is going at. And just noticing that pace. And also noticing where your breath is in your body, how it feels inside of your body, where it moves, how long it is, where it expands to. And then also notice if there's any emotional state in your body. So without even putting a word on the emotion, just sort of almost like the flavor of the emotional state inside of you right now. As if you were entering a wilderness and you didn't have to know what, what the plants were called, you could just notice them. You can just notice that emotional state where it is, where it resides, and if there's any discomfort in your body. And then you can open up your eyes again. So that was an embodiment exercise, which had the qualities of going inside. So we can start with just going inside our foot, but we can also go inside sort of the innerness of our bodies. What did that feel like for you to do that? Well, the main thing that I noticed and um, was that I, as I did it, I notice things kind of shift a little. Hmm. Like as I did it, I noticed that I was kind of had a funny posture and that just, just by noticing it, it sort of automatically moved a little mm -hmm. to something more 
upright and mm-hmm. my shoulder sort of shifted in terms mm-hmm. of how I was holding tension. And yeah. yeah, I mean, I hadn't been paying attention to any of that yeah. before, so before I just noticed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're pointing actually sort of an interesting thing, which is uh, meditators often point out that once you bring awareness to something, it's like you can't catch it. It's like catching a butterfly. It's going to, you know, it's going to change, right? As soon as you right. bring awareness yeah. to something. But, but this other component, which is you had a, a natural shift towards alignment or balance inside when you brought awareness to it. So the mm-hmm. nature of measuring anything is that it changes that thing. And the nature of embodiment is that once you bring awareness to it, your body already kind of wants to be in balance and knows has like mm-hmm. a, a deep knowing of what that is for you, whether it's your posture or whether it's emotional state and trusting that that process will happen. So I yeah. didn't say now shift your, you know, pull your shoulders back and drop your, you know, pelvis and do all those things. You, your body knew what to do Yeah. once you brought awareness to it. Mm-hmm. And the same is, is true for a lot of our experiences. We just don't trust it. And we kind of look to other people to tell us, what we should be doing. Even right. in yoga classes today, yoga has gotten way disembodied, like super disembodied. It's now like core, well, it's now like power, you know, power of right. where we can't, don't even have time to catch our breath, much less be in our bodies. Yeah. Versus yoga that has more been sort of traditionally driven by our innerness and inner awareness. Yeah. I went to a yoga class once where they were doing all these reps with weights and I thought, I'm pretty sure this isn't traditional. <laughs> How did I get in this class? <laughs> it was a good workout, but it did not feel at all like yoga. Right. It was very disembodied. Yeah. Very disembodied. Right. <laughs> and then you add in some mirrors. So now we have the exteroception, right? Mm-hmm. And the social comparison and the how aligned is my body versus closing my eyes and being able to figure out my alignment. Right? Yeah. So yeah. this is also just also a metaphor for our psychological selves as well. We know internally our own alignment in our life. We know what our values are. We know how when we're out of our values and when we're aligned. But when we are disembodied and not in our bodies and not listening, then we look at everyone else, you know, look in the mirror uh-huh. and figure out what what is important. Oh, it's that hairstyle or oh, it's those boots or oh, it's, you know, those are the things uh-huh. that I that I need as opposed to a turning into that innerness. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Um, It does. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm. So we've all been in that situation where we're like the trip to Hawaii, but we're fighting with our partner. No matter how beautiful that beach is, it's misery. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's happening in our internal world, our internal landscape is, is quite important. And I want to, um, talk a little bit about this kind of go back to the foot example because I think Katie Bowman's work is another example or metaphor for this disembodiment and how we've lost connection with with our innerness and our inner selves so since we're on the foot um, I think thinking about that when we're when we're little and we learn to walk we have those little fat flat cute little feet and somewhere mm-hmm. around and when they're really little they say oh put on those soft shoes like you know the little soft sole shoes but as you get a little bit older they um we, we start to put shoes on our bodies 
right? Mm-hmm. So Katie Bowman in her podcast, Katie says in her book as well, Move Your DNA, says that these shoes that we put on our bodies are actually casts and they're casting a shape with which our foot is going to go into. And so we, we wear this cast of, of the shoe and we also have paved most of our environment. So our environment is very flat, flat roads. I mean, if you were to walk out in nature, the environment would not be flat. Right. Yeah. Right? There's bumps and yeah. Right. There's right. bumps and all sorts of things. But our environment gets paved. Okay. And so we walk on paved environment in these shoes that are sort of casting our feet. Now we think that what we're doing is protecting our feet from pebbles and stones and all sorts of things, right? And what is actually happening is that our foot is no longer being exposed to the natural landscape of nature. So things like rocks and um, wet things and rough things and climbing up trees or climbing over logs. And all of that exposure from in a barefoot um, sense is strengthening the muscles and the flexibility of the foot, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I want you to go find something that is sort of like the size of like a stone or a tennis ball or an eraser, something that could fit under your foot. Okay. One moment. Okay. <laughs> is that... Perfect. Too bumpy? Tigger. Okay. Yeah, well, Tigger will be I have be a little toy, Tigger, <laughs> from Winnie the Pooh. Little... Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. Okay. <laughs> perfect. Okay. A little plastic toy that can fit in your hand. That's perfect. Okay. So now put that toy on the ground, and we still have okay. our barefoot. So people out there that are listening have also, they've stopped and they found something small. It can be a stone or a tennis ball or a toy or something like that in the racer. Now, put your foot on top of the toy. And just notice, this is embodiment, so get in your body and just notice how your foot molds to and shapes around the toy, mm-hmm. okay? And you'll probably feel certain sensations in your foot of the toy activating, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. Good embodiment. And what I want you to imagine is if you were kind of like walking over Tigger's barefoot like every day you were walking through your house and there was just a lot of tiggers around and you were just sort of gently walking through your house how well would your foot be able to respond to a tigger that's left out from your little girl um, on the floor if you were to walk over it if you just sort of did this on a repeated basis so the question is how 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 would your foot be able to respond yeah Yeah, yeah. you know it just sort of Go around it. Yeah, it would yeah. sort of go around it. It kind of right? like moves. Yeah. And what do you think My would happen? My foot sort of moves around. Yeah. And what do you think would happen to your foot over time from doing that? It would probably be more flexy, flexible. Flexy. Mm-hmm. And you might develop yeah. some calluses where the tigger, particularly his nose, particularly <laughs> pointy. Um, yeah. And you might, yeah, your foot would be more flexible. It probably would be stronger. There'd probably be upward um, strengthening of like if your foot were to land on the tigger, other muscles around the area would be strengthened because they would support the area that's having to flex over the tigger. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now let's imagine that you 
haven't been doing this and you've been wearing shoes since you were three years old, like most of us on the planet, and one day you decided you were going to take off your shoes in your home and your little kid left Tigger there and you stepped on Tigger, what, what do you think would happen? Well, I can say from personal experience. <laughs> really? <laughs> it hurts. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. yeah it hurts. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I didn't pick a Lego because those are the worst. Legos are painful. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah. But it also causes potential for you to do what? Not just get hurt, to, but... Yeah, like twist your ankle or... Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Fall over. Okay, now you're 70 years old and you have grandchildren and they left Tigger out and you've been wearing your shoes for 68 years and you step on Tigger, what happens? Oh no, <laughs> you get hurt. You right. Get hit. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, how does this relate? Okay. This is about our bodies, but this is also about our psychology. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I'll make the connection for us. Okay. Okay. Um, here's the connection. One is we, let's just say with our feet, Repeated not going out into the wilderness and casting our feet in protective layers of shoes makes our feet less flexible and less strong and less resilient Mm. to when there is a significant event that happens and less embodied. We're less, we just know so little about these feet that carry us around day in and day out because we don't have to, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't have to. So Mm -hmm. how this relates to our psychology is that we do the same things with ourselves around our own emotional avoidance and our psychological inflexibility. We pave the roads of our own psychology, right? Mm-hmm. How do we do this? We do things like, ooh, something's uncomfortable. I'm, I'm, giving a, you know, I'm giving a talk for work, and so it's really uncomfortable for me. So before I go... I might take a few Xanax just to make me feel a little bit better so I don't have to feel that discomfort of going into the talk. I don't have to learn how to navigate that landscape of my heart beating a little bit more rapidly or myself being a little bit more revved before doing a talk. I have a solution for that. Mm-hmm. Right? We put right. casts on ourselves in all sorts of ways. Can you? I mean, since you're an act therapist, you can think about emotional avoidance and now interoceptive avoidance and how that relates what do you, what's coming to mind for you well you know sometimes i have a client every now and then who has panic attacks and i mean actually i think i think that most people actually have panic attacks at one time or another mm-hmm. but what can be really problematic for folks with prob- panic attacks is when they're not used to that sensation you know the heart pounding mm-hmm. and that kind of i don't know a lot of times people feel a little just sort of dis spaced out or something mm-hmm. like that when they're having them. And, and that can be really scary for people. Mm-hmm. And that's, they end up in the ER or they end up being really terrified that they're going to have another one. Mm-hmm. And really what's happening is that your body's just kicking into that sympathetic arousal, you right. know, your fight or flight sim- system that keeps you alive is, is going off. And, right. but I think that, yeah, when people feel that and they don't know what's happening and they're really terrified of that, they, that causes a whole host of other problems. Right. And the, the, there's two key components to panic attacks leading to panic disorder. Like you mentioned, I think it's 80% of people experience a panic attack at some point in their life. Yeah, I know. I sure have. I I've sure had have, a, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But what leads panic attacks to panic disorder is two things. One is you move out of just the sensory experience into a cognitive reappraisal of that experience. So you move mm-hmm. out of 
heart's beating. This is a weird sensation. Oh my gosh, what's happening to me? Like, I, ugh, I feel like I'm like, you know, into, oh my gosh, I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack. This has to go away. What if I faint? I hope I don't embarrass myself. You move from body to head. Yeah. That's or this is horrible. This like, is horrible. I hate feeling this. This is awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't stand it. And that is actually, this, this actually gets mapped on to, to neuroscience. So what Farb, um, Norman Farb has, has shown in his neuroscience studies is that actual interoceptive awareness is lower in um, sort of our older part of our brain in the insula, whereas awareness of sort of that cognitive reappraisal, of making a statement about, about what we're feeling is in a higher part of our brain, which is more in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and more of the kind of newer neocortex areas. So it totally maps on of what, of what yeah. we do. So I said with panic, there's two problems. One is we start appraising our, our sensations rather than being in our sensations or being in a, in a sort of with the sensation. And then the second issue with panic is we do experiential avoidance. We start to yeah. avoid anything related to our panic. And so our life gets more and more and more narrow. And that's how we're paving our roads or putting on our shoes because, oh my gosh, my little tender foot. And so we don't get to relearn or, or learn that actually stepping on a rock isn't going to harm you, but actually not stepping on the rock for a lifetime will. Right. Yeah. It's like saying, well, if I go out into this public place, I might have another panic attack. Or if I get into this situation where I'm expected to perform a certain way, I might have another one. And the more you stop doing those things and avoid those situations, you know, you start missing out on some right. things right. that might be important to you. That right. Might be important to you. So you're letting the fear of your sensory experience drive, drive you as opposed mm -hmm. to what you really want in your life. And this whole concept of resilience is that it's being resilient is not about not experiencing stress. Being resilient is the ability, the ability to experience stress and then be to return back to baseline again. Mm -hmm. So to, to be in a state of where we're constantly moving out of in and out of stressful situations, but being able to return to baseline again is, is the resilient component. So there's clinical implications for this embodiment, disembodiment stuff. Are you still with me? I feel like yeah, sometimes I, I feel am. like I'm a little crazy. <laughs> I've gone no, a little following. I can, I'm following okay. you. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's just look at some other. So we, we talked about panic. That's a perfect example. Another classic example of disembodiment. Think about eating disorders, right? So majority of eating disorders start as people just going on a diet. For some people, dieting doesn't cause a problem. For some people, dieting is sort of the, the impetus to start, to start off a whole slew of events of disordered eating. And that's in part due to just the characteristics of the individual, the whole you know number of characteristics that lead to immune disorder. But if we think about dieting, it's at its core, a practice of disembodiment. Because it's saying what in order to be on a diet, you have to restrict the type and amount of food that you're eating. And in doing so, you have to shut down or ignore a very important internal system, which is your hunger and fullness system. Your system that is pretty hardwired and pretty important to our survival. Uh, and it's, it's a 
pretty phenomenal. There's a whole, <laughs> whole lot of energy and hormones and brain that is focused on your hunger and fullness. And so you're choosing when you're dieting to shut that out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now what happens is that you can shut it out, but over time, for some people, that can lead to something like anorexia, where you just, your hunger completely, you get completely disconnected with your hunger and fullness. You also get disconnected from some other things. People with anorexia also have high levels of alexithymia, which is a disconnection from their emotional experience, right? And then there's mm-hmm. a slew of hormonal and physiological things that happen when you're a low body weight. You see asexuality, you see all sorts of things of disconnection that happened. Um, Or on the other end of things, if you've cut off your hunger, you've gotten really used to not paying attention to your hunger, but then maybe your willpower um, is low and it's um, usually towards the end of the day when our willpower is low and you end up eating, you have something called disinhibition, which is you don't have an ability to even stop with your fullness either. Right. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get cut out from both from on both ends. So repetitive pattern of disembodiment can lead to disruption in in our relationship with food, relationship with our bodies, and is really problematic. So like when people go do binge eating, regardless of whether you have uh, you know, have technically an eating disorder or mm-hmm. not, if you, I think most of us have probably had a point where we just ate past that point of feeling full. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you're talking that's about, a, right? That's that a, that's body's, yeah, yeah, that's body's telling you you're full, mm-hmm. but you're just not paying attention to you're that feeling. Attention. And the next thing you know, you're just totally full because you've gone way past that point. Right. And if you yeah. think about also the way that we eat, there's so many cues that are focused on exteroception. So we're eating in front of the TV with our phone in our hand and, you know, very quickly. So a lot of ways in which we are not focusing on what's happening in here. And maybe we mm-hmm. haven't focused what's happening inside all day long, right? So expecting ourselves yeah. to do that when we sit down and eat is, you know, right. going to happen. And so that's where tools like mindful eating and mindfulness-based interventions for um, something like eating disorders are quite effective and are showing to be very helpful in this arena. And I would say a key component of that is the interoceptive component. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they have, you know, they've done studies. There was, um, you know, Linda Craighead, my advisor, she did a study with Amanda Joel Brown on the she, the SHE program, which is support for healthy eating and exercise program. It was a college-based intervention. And they found that when they were teaching women to use their internal appetite signals to guide their eating um, as a way to decrease disordered eating behaviors, that that actual appetite awareness is what mediated the improvement on um, the binge eating symptoms as well as um, sense of self-efficacy and being able to and, and, and disordered eating later on. So uh, they were able to actually use that intervention to create a change. So... Anxiety disorders, we've talked a little bit about that. And what we know um, also is about um, chronic pain and our attempts to control our pain and um, get disconnected from our bodies around around pain. So there's a really classic study uh, by Steve Hayes. Do you remember, did you ever hear about the cold presser study where people put their hands in cold water? You know, I remember doing some of that when I worked in, I used to work in a DBT setting and we did that with people. We'd have them plunge their hand in a cold bucket of ice water. Oh yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. That's actually, that's actually a good embodiment practice. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, and it the was newer meant DBT to orient your face them. In cold water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was meant to orient them away from whatever. It's to get them in their bodies. Getting them really upset and just bring it back to this one sensation that's yeah. pretty powerful. Yeah. Exactly. If you've ever stuck your bucket in your hand in a bucket of ice water, it's a yeah. very powerful stimulus. Yeah. yeah it is totally. Uh, that that's actually. That's, that's, but it, was that what you were talking about? With no, this, that's but that's a, that's oh. a good embodiment example. But the um, the study I'm talking about is a Steve Hayes. It's a it's like a classic act study where they had people hold their hand in 33 degrees slurry of ice water and they had them practice one of three things either they were just sort of a neutral group that weren't given instructions or they were told to control their pain or they were told to allow for accept the sensations to arise just notice the sensations in their hand Mm. and then they measured two things they measured the subjective experience of pain and the length of time that they were able to hold their hands in the water And so the more that you were trying to actually control your pain through like cognitive approaches, like think about something else or distract yourself or think happy thoughts, or this isn't so bad (laughs) that you had, you had more subjective experience of pain than people that were just allowing the pure sensation of pain to be there. And you also couldn't hold your hand in the water as long as people who just allowed and accept the sensation of pain to be there. And this maps onto the whole concept of the sort of what we resist actually makes it stronger. And Dan Wagner at Harvard University describes this as this ironic process that when you attempt to resist a certain thought or action or or sensation, the effort can actually backfire and, and cause it to become worse. And this is in part what's also happening for people with chronic pain. And with chronic pain, there's also a, a disembodiment that's happening, which is I don't want to feel this area. I don't like this area. It's it's so uncomfortable. But actually, that's avoidant and disembodiment can contribute to the pain sensation. And what they're finding is that this does also map on, again, to, to the brain. So when people... Um, are experiencing sort of a pain experience, there's two components to it. There's the actual perception of the sensory component, but then there's the affective component, which is whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So those are two Mm. different things. And I want you just to practice this with me. So what you can do with, this is actually a really great stretch to do on a frequent basis, which is to put your arms out to the side and then turn your palms up so that your fingertips are pressing on his nose, your face going yeah. up. <laughs> so you're pressing your hand, your palms sort of out and your fingertips are facing yes. up toward the sky. Exactly. So your fingertips yeah. are facing up and your palms are pressing out. What do you notice right. sensation wise in your body? Um, I'm noticing my arm muscles mm-hmm. and then you- my, there's like some, something tingling on my palms. Mm-hmm. Do you notice an, a feeling of like a nerve going along your arms all the way down out to like the tips of your fingertips. So you're pressing your arms out pretty, pressing your um, palms out pretty intensely while your fingertips are moving up to the skies. Uh-huh. Flexion. Do you notice that sensation? Yeah. Cause I just pushed, I just did it a little bit more and I noticed that. Yeah. Okay. You notice that nerve feeling? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that nerve feeling as we're doing this, if I were to tell you there is something wrong in your body that is like nerve pain, would feel very differently than I'm saying you're doing a really nice stretch for uh-huh. your arms that we don't often move our, our, our wrists in this direction. Our wrists are usually pointing in the other direction because we're doing so much typing. Um, 
and, you know, phone stuff, this is a really nice stretch for your nerve. So that mm-hmm. cognitive appraisal is going to impact your sensation of pleasantness or unpleasantness. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that I think contributes to that, um, kind of equating pain with sort of suffering, Yeah, you know, that pain is a signal. Um, but a lot of times it's not really doing any damage to our bodies when it's chronic pain, mm-hmm. but when we, you know, want to get rid of it and we don't like it and we put that attribution on it, then it's, then we're suffering. Yeah. Exactly. And that's when it gets to be the problem. Right. Yeah, And that's where Kabat-Zinn's work with MBSR, which has a huge component of the body scan, as well as some yoga practices, is, is so helpful for chronic pain. Because they're mm-hmm. actually not changing their perception, they're not changing the sensation necessarily of the pain, but they're changing that, that relationship of it being unpleasant or the trying to get rid of it. It's really moving into the, the wilderness of the pain of really fully exploring the sensation without having a label put on it. Yeah. And that, yep. is, that is embodiment. Um, there are parts of our body that we have not visited in years. And you will discover them <laughs> if you start to, <laughs> if you take a yoga class. And actually in our next episode, we will discover some of them as well. So I just want to um, close because we're going to, next time we talk, we're going to talk about sort of the, the part two of embodiment, which is how to do it a little bit more. And just sort of in summarize what we've talked about tonight, we've, we've talked about what is embodiment, um, a little bit about how it maps on to psychological struggles and how it may be helpful. We've used a little bit of metaphor in the physical realm with like our feet and um, the flat world to explore that, and a little bit um, of neuroscience, talking about what's going on in our brain when we're embodied. Well, this is so interesting. I did not know what to expect tonight, and I have to say this is like really, um, I think, opening up whole new worlds and ideas, because some of this stuff I've thought about before, but I've never thought about it in quite this way. Quite so this way. so I'm, I'm really intrigued to know what's coming next. Yeah. So let's close with closing your eyes and checking back in again. Am I in my body? How long has it been since I was in my body? Gosh. And climbing back inside again, can you find your breath? Can you notice the state of your mind now? Its pace. And can you just notice sort of the flavor of the emotional state of your body? Sensations within. And then opening our eyes, coming back again, doing what Anita Johnston, who's a psychologist, talks about, which is can you still keep one eye in while you have one eye out. So you can keep one eye in your body while still seeing me and being connected to me. And that's sort of a little bit more of an advanced practice. Mm. Yeah. One eye in, one eye out. Okay. I will talk to you soon for embodiment part two. Thank you, Diane. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.